chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always." to the very end of the age. And this is God's word. Thank you. Well, let me say good morning and add my welcome to Matt's and say it's very good to have you with us, uh, particularly if you're a visitor. Do keep that passage open from uh, the book of Matthew, the last chapter of Matthew. That's what we'll be considering together. Before we begin, let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father God, we pray that the same Spirit who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead would open our eyes to grasp what that resurrection means for us today. For his sake, amen. Well, if, uh, if you have joined us this morning for the first time, you, you need to know that we've reached the end of Matthew's Gospel uh, after seven years. On and off, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel uh, all 28 chapters of it, for about seven years now. So you've reached um, a big day. You've come on a big day. We're reaching the end of Matthew's Gospel. But actually, you've come on a good day because the last 27 chapters are an unfinished story without this one, without the resurrection of Jesus. They don't make sense without it. The whole story fails without it. So let me just sum up where we are at the end of chapter 27. Let me recap for us where we are without the resurrection in chapter 28. Matthew would put it like this, heaven and earth are apart. They're separate. Heaven and earth are still separate. Heaven, who God is and what he stands for, has no place on earth. Earth is full of people and places that have no place for the God of heaven. We don't do God 
was Alistair Campbell's famous interruption to Tony Blair when he was talking about faith. But it's not just politics that says no to God and has no place for God. Now, the book of Matthew in the Bible says that that's true of humankind generally. It's true of our workplaces. It's true of societies, nations. That earth has no place for the gods of heaven. Now, it might be if uh, you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you think that's fine. In a sense, that's the premise on which you run your life. You say, God's out there in heaven. It's his place if he exists. But it has nothing to do with my life here on earth. But Christian people know that God's purpose is to bring the two together. God's project, we've seen it in Matthew, is that God's will, what God wants to happen, will happen on earth. He gave us uh, a little prayer, a subversive little prayer, which we still pray. We prayed it this morning. We pray it every week here. Uh, if you look back at the Lord's Prayer in your service sheet, you'll see that he, he's told us to pray and taught us to pray, may your kingdom come. Whose kingdom? The Father in heaven. May it come. May your will, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's purpose is that heaven would come to earth, the kingdom of heaven would recover earth for God. But that project has failed as at the end of chapter 27. Do you see the last verse? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who claims to be able to bring heaven to earth, he lies in a tomb dead. The door of the tomb is sealed with a stone, and there's a guard outside. Heaven and earth are still apart. They're still separate. But here's the thing. For as long as that's true... For as long as uh, God is God in heaven uh, and earth has no place for him, the church is always going to be scared. We're going to be scared followers of Jesus. We're going to be fearful and frightened. Uh, following Jesus when things are like that is it's going to be a bit like being a football fan and you're in the opposition ends. You discover that you're supposed to be supporting your team, but you're in the midst of the opposition fans and you're never going to raise your voice. You're never going to acknowledge that you support the opposition team. You're always going to be scared. And we've seen lots of scared disciples in the last few chapters of Matthew. And so that's why we need chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel. Because here's the headline. It takes the risen Jesus to bring heaven to earth. And the amazing thing is he does it by putting strength and courage into a fearful church. He turns his church from being those who fear the world into those who, by his authority, change it. So we're going to come and see that in chapter 28. Now, broadly, how the chapter breaks down or how we're going to tackle it is um, a little bit unusual, perhaps. We've got 20 verses, but we're going to spend most of our time in verses 16 to 20, particularly verses 18 to 20. And the reason for that is because it's not really enough to come and see the empty tomb in order to get what the resurrection of Jesus means. Verses 1 to 7, the disciples see the empty tomb, but it's not enough. They're told to go to Galilee to see what it really means. And dare I say, it's not even enough to see the risen Jesus in verses 8 to 10. He too says, go to Galilee. That's where the resurrection of Jesus will make sense for us. And so we'll get to Galilee quite quickly in verse 16. That's where we'll spend most of our time. But just for the next couple of minutes, I do want to walk us through verses 1 to 15, because in these verses, we do see the beginnings of an answer to our question. 
How will heaven and earth ever be brought together and the church ever be anything other than afraid? We see the beginnings of an answer in verses 1 to 15. Do you see in verses 1 to 7, first of all, there's strange goings on. At dawn on the first day of the week, that first Easter morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they go to look at the tomb. Do you see in verses 2 to 4, look at the strange goings on. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow and the guards were so afraid of him they shook and became like dead men. Now, if you think that's uh, strange and a break from the norm, well, you're right. It is. And it is in the world of Matthew as well. This is really odd. And the thing that's odd about it that Matthew would have us notice is that, that heaven, which usually keeps itself to itself, that's the way the world is, isn't it? Well, heaven is coming to earth. Those realms are not so separate. Now, an angel comes from heaven to this tomb, this tomb of Jesus Christ, And we think you don't belong here. Heaven doesn't belong with earth. And it's got something to do with the resurrection of Jesus, verse 6. He's not in the tomb, says the angel. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Heaven and earth aren't apart any longer. And it's got something to do with the resurrection. And we'll see that when we get to Galilee. But do you notice what all this means for disciples, those who follow Jesus? In verses 1 to 10. Do you see verse 4? It brings great fear to the guards. But the angel says to the disciples, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Something about this resurrection is supposed to remove Christian fear. Jesus says the same when he meets the disciples. They worship at his feet and he says, do not be afraid. The resurrection means do not be afraid. If we're Christians and We're filled with fear of the future, of life, of the prospect of death. We'll hear these words of comfort from Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus. Do not be afraid, he says. Well, how that can be, we need to see by coming to Galilee. But just before we get there, we get verses 11 to 15. And this is a words of warning, really, in verses 11 to 15. If you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a Christian... Verses 11 to 15 say that you too need to come to Galilee. You need to find out what the resurrection of Jesus means. The alternative is that you enter into a conspiracy of silence. Do you see that in verses 11 to 15? While the women were on their way to Galilee, they go the other way. They go the other way. The guards who've seen and know that Jesus is raised from the dead, they've seen this angel and the empty tomb, Will they go to the chief priests into the city and tell them what has happened? And through bribery and a conspiracy of silence, they suppress the truth about Jesus' resurrection. And so those are really the choices. We can come and we can see what Jesus' resurrection really means at Galilee, or we can enter into a conspiracy of silence and suppression. It's ironic, really, that over the years people would accuse the disciples or the Christian church of, of making up the resurrection. The opposite is true. And so let me encourage us to have the integrity and the courage to come to Galilee and see what Jesus' resurrection means for you and me. Well, let's do that then. And from verse 16 on, verse 16, let me read. Then the 11 disciples, that is the 11 other than Judas, went, or the 12 other than Judas, went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. 
When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then we get the sentence that removes all hesitant, fearful worship. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's hard to overstate the importance of that sentence. It ought to be in bold. All authority in heaven and on earth has been placed in the hands of the risen Jesus. So the resurrection means that that Jesus has been awarded, if you like, this extensive authority, not just authority on earth, but on heaven, in heaven as well. And what that means is that there is nowhere now that is not under the rightful authority of Jesus Christ. So just imagine for a moment a son. A son inherits a house. He comes into his inheritance and he goes to collect from the executor of the will the keys to the house. And the executor gives to the son uh, the keys to uh, the whole house. And the son says, well, I know that in the house there's a basement, that it's been locked for many years, that it needs to be restored. I need the key for that too. And the executor of the will says, no, there's one key. You've got the key to the house and that opens the basement as well. It goes without saying that when you've got the house, you've got the basement. Your authority over the the whole house extends to the basement. The key there opens up the key to the basement. And there's a sense as well that when Jesus is raised and is given authority in heaven, well, he's now got authority over the whole earth. It opens the key, as it were, to the whole earth. And that's really significant for us. We're going to see it's significant in three ways now. And this is really what the resurrection of Jesus means for us, means for the church, means for anyone. And so we're going to see that uh, it means three things. It means a, a new kind of discipleship, new kind of baptism, and a new kind of teaching. We're going to look at each of these in turn. Now, it's true that these commands were given to those 11 then. But it's also clear in the New Testament that these get passed down from the apostles to the church in each generation. And at the very end of verse 20, Jesus says, I'm with you to the end of the age. This is a project that's for our generation as much as it was theirs. And so these commands are for us as a church as much as it was for them. So let's see, first of all, that it means for us, go and make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus says. Go and disciple all nations. Well, here's a command you couldn't get before the resurrection. It takes the risen son to give this command to go and disciple all nations. Back in, uh, in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus sent out his disciples and he said, go and uh, seek out the lost sheep of Israel, but don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go there. And there's a sense in which at that point, Jesus of Nazareth's authority is limited. But it's all changed now. Because he's got authority in heaven and on earth. There is no person or place that is outside his rightful authority. And so he can say, go and make disciples of all nations. There is no person or place outside the rightful authority of Jesus Christ. And so what this 
means for us is, well, first and foremost, by Jesus' authority, become a disciple. Become a disciple. It's the most sensible thing in the world to do. I mean, when we thought that God was in his place and he didn't interfere or have a claim over our lives, well, it seems sensible to keep him at arm's length. But Jesus Christ has got rightful authority over the whole earth, over your life and over mine. And so it's the most sensible thing in the world to follow him, to become a disciple, to acknowledge that he's got a claim over our life. Become a disciple. If you haven't done before, become a disciple today. By the authority of Jesus Christ, become a disciple. But the same thing that that makes people disciples makes us disciple-makers. So the authority of Jesus Christ says to us who are already disciples, Go and make disciples. Be a disciple-maker by my authority. You see, what makes somebody enter places that claim to they won't follow Jesus, resist his authority, places that won't acknowledge God, what, what gives people the right, what gives the Christian church the right, what gives you the right to go and enter those places and those lives with the claims of Jesus? Well, it's not force of personality. It's not because people are gregarious and, you know, they're happy to step out of comfort zones. The only thing that makes people disciple-makers is the authority of the risen Son, the Lord Jesus. There's, uh, there's someone in our congregation, and for the sake of the recording and where they're going, I'm, I'm not going to mention the details of who they are. Lots of you will know him. But in the next few weeks, he's going to get on a plane and he's going to go to North Africa. And he's going to seek to bring the gospel message to Muslims, to people who don't currently acknowledge Jesus Christ. Now, why would he enter places like that? Why would he bring the claims of Jesus to lives like that, but for the authority of the risen Son? That's the only thing that sends him there. Because Jesus Christ says, go and make disciples now of all nations. It's only the risen Son who could say that, to whom the whole earth belongs. And for all of us, it's, it's not an optional task. I mean, for example, for mothers and fathers here, for parents and families, we are disciple makers in the home. We don't buy into the idea that, you know, we let our children grow up and let them choose what they believe. No, our job is to make them disciples of Jesus to teach them about him, to teach them to follow him. Because we are all under the rightful authority of the Lord Jesus. The same thing, the authority of Jesus that makes us disciples, also makes us disciple makers. But to see what it means to be a disciple, we need to look at the next two commands of Jesus, because he really fleshes it out. Go and make disciples, what does that look like? Well, it looks like baptizing and teaching. First of all, baptizing. What does it mean to make disciples? Jesus says to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is, uh, is always an outward sign of a deep change in somebody. Somebody passes through baptism, it's a sign that that person has become a new person. They're a new person on the other side. But the kind of baptism you go through tells you what kind of person you've become. And Christian baptism 
the baptism that the risen Jesus commands is a new kind of baptism. We've never seen it before. This is the first time we see it. To be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what does it mean? In a nutshell, Jesus says that being a disciple of his, it's not joining an earthly club, but it's more like being adopted into a heavenly family. Not joining an earthly club, but being adopted into a heavenly family. You see, we, we have seen a baptism a bit like this before. It's come up in Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus was baptized. And when Jesus went to be baptized, it was like the lights were switched on in the universe. And we saw that he wasn't just any old person. He was a son, the son of God. We saw, because we heard his voice, it was the Father in heaven who spoke of his love for the Son, the Spirit who came upon him. We saw that the truth at the heart of the universe is that God is one, but he is revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as it were, that that heavenly family, we glimpsed at Jesus' baptism, but it wasn't open to us to join. Heaven and earth were separate. It wasn't open to us to be part of that. But now Jesus says it is. And what has changed is his death and resurrection means that we can be forgiven and be accepted into these relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit. We bear the name of the Father God, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that is what Jesus means when he says, baptize in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. He is saying that because of what I have done, Share these relationships of heaven with people on earth. It's a great privilege to belong and be adopted into God's heavenly family. And so for us, I, I want to say that, well, we're to be baptized into this, into these relationships, and we're to baptize others into these relationships, and it means not just the fact of baptism, but it means that we never withhold the Trinity. We never withhold these relationships of Father, Son, and Spirit from disciples of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's a wrong thing to say that the Trinity, the truth that we have a Father God, that we are joint heirs with the Son, that we're children of God, and that we're possessed of the Spirit, it's wrong to say that that's somehow a doctrine or a truth for mature people. No, it's for baptism. It's for the beginning of the Christian life, And it's for every day of the Christian life. So we're not to withhold the Trinity. We're not to have one-sided Christian lives. But we're to know all the richness of these three relationships with Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, there's a really important pastoral reason for that, which is that no one will ever begin the Christian life and no one will ever keep going in the Christian life unless they know that they've been adopted, as it were, into this heavenly family that we have a Father in heaven, we belong to the Son, and we possess the Spirit of God. If we uh, just consider for a moment back to Gethsemane, Jesus Christ would never have resisted temptation, would never have succeeded in going to the cross were it not for the knowledge of the love of his Father that he had in the garden and his trust in that same Father that took him to the cross. We'll only keep going in the Christian life if we know that we have a Father in heaven, that we are children of God and joint heirs with the Son, 
and that we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. We're to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, Jesus comes on finally to teaching. Teach, he says, verse 20. Teach them, teach disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. Now that sounds to us a bit like an add-on. It's, it's a sort of catch-all. Oh, and uh, teach everything that I've commanded you. It's a bit of an afterthought. But actually, this is a command that's really changed after the resurrection. And let me try and illustrate this way. This might not work for us, but let's run with it anyway. So um, if you've ever been sent an email with a, with a link in it with some words, and uh, it looks like a link, and you're supposed to click on it, and it's supposed to lead to a website and a link, maybe a map or another website, and you've gone to, to click on it, but actually the words have no link. They lead nowhere. You, you spend your time, you're highlighting it, you're really frustrated. The person who sent this to you says the link is attached, but it's not. Those words lead nowhere. They're dead words. They're empty promises. Looks like it should lead you somewhere. It should link to something else, but it doesn't. And then someone sends you a proper link, and uh, it's almost electrified. It's got that hyperlink. You click on it, it leads straight away somewhere else. It promises it'll lead you somewhere else, and it does. Well, there's a sense in which the words of Jesus Christ before he's raised from the dead, we can't be sure that they lead anywhere. He claims that if we obey his commands, we will inherit the earth. But for as long as he lies in a tomb, dead, well, those words look like they're empty promises that don't lead anywhere. But when the risen son says to us, obey all that I have commanded you, teach people to obey all that I have commanded you, we've got a fresh confidence that this leads somewhere because it has led to his inheritance. He's come into his inheritance. He's inherited the earth. And so all the commands of Jesus Christ are, if you like, linked to that future. They're guaranteed to lead somewhere. They're guaranteed to lead somewhere. If that doesn't work for you, well, quite simply, he's laying before us two paths. He has throughout Matthew's gospel. Build your words on Jesus's life and you will inherit the new earth. And now that path of obedience, well, it's got a placard over it that says this path has been proven to lead to inheritance. It's never in vain to obey Jesus's commands. And I think this means a couple of things for us. First of all, it must mean that we make a priority of obedience. We make a priority of obedience. And so I want to say, Christians who are living differently in a culture that says God should have no place in our lives, you will not be disappointed. Where you hold to Jesus' commands about sexual purity in a culture that says, look, that's foolish, you'd only be missing out, you will not be disappointed in obeying those commands. You'll never be shown to have wasted your opportunities. Christians who've lost out on the approval of earthly fathers and families because you follow Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. Christians who wish they were more godly deep down. The world says, don't you want to be free of constraints, but actually deep down, you just want to be free of sin. You long for righteousness. Well, you will not be disappointed. You'll not be disappointed. Christians who are making decisions about how they use their money based on Jesus' words, 
knowing that treasures on earth are unsafe and insecure, you'll not be disappointed. Now, Jesus always said you wouldn't be disappointed, but the point is that as the risen son, he's proven it. He's proven it. The way of obedience will lead to inheriting the new earth. It always holds great promise. So we're to make a priority of obedience. And secondly, we're to make a priority of teaching obedience. Jesus says, teach the disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. And so this is a challenge to any of us involved in teaching here at CCM. And to us all as a church of the kind of teaching we're to be committed to. You see, we mustn't underestimate or underemphasize obedience to Jesus' commands. To stop, as it were, at baptism, the point where we first acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ and to relax on Jesus' commands. Because Jesus here says that obeying his commands, it's not an optional extra. It's not a secondary thing. It is the very heart of what God is doing in the world, of how God's will in heaven is done on earth. And so we're to teach obedience. It's to be the very center of what we're doing. It's been a great challenge to me preparing this, that that God's principal way of working out his purposes on earth is by bringing about obedience to Jesus' commands. It may not seem flashy, but this is the way that God's will in heaven is done on earth. We're to make a priority of teaching obedience. So then, by the authority of the risen Son, we're to go and make disciples of all nations. Because of the work of the risen Son, we're qualified to be adopted, accepted into this heavenly family, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the risen Son can say to us, obey my commands, for they lead to inheritance. But he leaves us with a final sentence, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And with this we'll conclude too, because in these words, Jesus dispels any lingering fear that his church might have, and any lingering doubts that heaven will one day not recover the earth. He dispels those fears and doubts with these words, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Even Cyrus knew when he sent the Judeans back to build their temple. He knew that you needed the God of heaven to be with his people if the great building project was ever to succeed. Well, Jesus Christ says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's not just an aimless presence. He's with us to put strength in our hands, in the hands of his church, to complete this. And he'll be standing there when the last brick, as it were, is put on the church, when heaven has recovered the earth. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, says Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Father God, we praise you for that empty tomb. Uh, We praise you for the risen Jesus, how he's able to say, do not be afraid. And we praise you for the words on that mountain in Galilee that explain that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And we pray that through that authority that he gives, 
that he has, through the presence which he promises to us, we might go and disciple, we might baptize and teach. And we pray that the result would be that the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.